The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, uh, which will be Luke 7, 11 to 17. Um, I'm going to pray, and then I'll read the passage. Uh, If you weren't here last week, uh, we had a slight change in format, so... Uh, What will happen is I'll talk for a little bit, we'll read the passage again, make some observations together, uh, and then I'll make a couple couple preaching points, and then I will usher myself off the stage after the the Q&A time. So um, let's pray as, uh, as we read God's Word. God, we are thankful for the time and the space that we have to meet here. Uh, We're grateful. for our place in the world, that you have called us into this moment, that you speak truth and life through your word and through each other. And I pray that as we enter into this time that you would open us up by your spirit uh, to hear your word in fresh ways, that you would stir our hearts and our minds, engage our senses as we enter into this story and to uh, follow your footsteps, to see an interaction that you had in in the most challenging of circumstances, that we might be encouraged by that, that we might learn uh, from your example, and that you might empower us by your spirit to live that out in the week ahead. We thank you uh, for the great gift of having revealed yourself through your word, and not only that, but having access to it in translations that we can read and understand. Uh, Give us understanding, we pray. Amen. So I'm going to read uh, Luke 7, uh, 11 to 17. I think it will be up on the screen. Uh, My translation may differ from that a little bit. I realize I cut and pasted it out of one translation and I brought a different Bible uh, because that's that's how I roll. So um, if it's a little different on the screen, you'll be okay, I promise. Um, And if if there's something you notice that's different, that might be actually pretty interesting for a QA and a time. So Let's read together. Um, actually, no, let's not read together. I'll read, and, and you could just, just take, take it all in. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has appeared among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout Judea and in all the surrounding region. Last week, just in case you weren't here, uh, we started out structuring our time around some questions. uh, And the goal in all of that is to slow ourselves down as we're reading the Bible. Now, if you grew up in a church setting, 
Um, you may be conditioned to reading the Bible in certain ways, uh, and even if you didn't grow up in that setting, the Bible can be a very intimidating book. Uh, just for the content alone, to say nothing of this is how God shapes our spirits, it's how he shapes our hearts and our minds, and in order to engage that fully, really what we have to do is we have to slow down. Um, where I think, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that we can often be rushed in our reading and observing things, and we may miss uh, important details. So these questions that I put out there, there's no magic formula. They're just questions that are designed to make us slow down and to consider. Um, so I'm going to put those back up on the screen. These are what we used last week. They're very basic questions, and the reason that I put them up there uh, is we are trained by our circumstances to observe story. We read, we watch movies, we engage media in all sorts of different ways, ways that are honestly quite compelling and, and make careful observations. And what I am noticing is that we don't always carry that same mindset into the reading of the Bible, uh, that for whatever reason, we don't apply those same sets of principles um, as, as we read Scripture and as we engage it imaginatively. So again, these questions, um, these ones are just the who, what, and where questions. They're just factual observations. And What's different about the Bible is, as I said, this is what God uses to shape our hearts and our minds and our spirits. So before we can enter into the why question, we have to answer details, right? So we slow ourselves down, the who, what, and where, and then we do believe that Scripture is living and active, that God is doing something. It's not just an artifact of history. It's not just a dead letter. Uh, it speaks to us here in the, in the here and now. So what we end up doing, hopefully, we answer these who, what, and where questions before we get to the why is it that God by his spirit is imprinting this? Like, why is this word the one that's jumping out at me? And that doesn't happen all the time, right? I, I would be lying if I said that, like, every single moment of Bible reading is just going to be this constant firework display. I don't find that to be the case in my own uh, circumstances. I'd be lying if I said that I did. Most of life is just very ordinary, quite frankly. There's the day-to-day. -day, uh, we go through our normal routines. What we're doing in engaging Scripture is... We engage it regularly, so there are those moments where we do pump the brakes a little bit, and we say, like, this is something that I might want to slow down and consider. You may be reading a particular psalm. You may be reading a section in Mark or in Luke, or you may be reading something else where you just decide, I'm going to slow down a little bit because it feels like God might be doing something. And then there are times where you slam on the brakes, that there's a word that catches you in a particular way, and you just realize that for whatever amount of time I have, I'm going to slow down, I'm going to stop right here, and this is where I'm going to camp out and live. Um, so anyway, questions aren't magic. They're just designed to slow us down. So we went through these last week. Who are the people involved? How are they being portrayed? There's the where question. Where is this taking place? There's details. What are the actions, the times, the places? What theology, if any, is being presented? And then how does the story function within the gospel, right? 
So we have the benefit, I would say, of four Gospels, each one slightly different in their flavor. So we ask ourselves, how does this story fit in Luke's Gospel in particular, and how does it fit across the four Gospels? Are there stories that are the same? Are there stories that are the same and yet a little different? So we familiarize ourselves with that content so we can engage in that way. And again, just because it, it warrants repeating, the whole idea here is slowing ourselves down so we can ask why. Now, in this particular case, just to, you know, tip my hand before we start, there are some really interesting details about this story in this gospel. And if we slow ourselves down to consider it, I think it yields some pretty rich insight into God's character, into who he is, how it shapes our lives personally, but also missionally. And if we slow down and consider that, I think there's something for us there. There's something, if we could go back, there's the people involved. This one's a pretty straightforward, there's not a ton of people involved. There are... I guess I should say, it seems like there are a lot of people, but most of them are unnamed and unidentified. There's just like large crowds. Um, so that could be significant, but there aren't too many people. There's also an interesting Old Testament connection that we'll talk about a little bit in terms of what is Luke intending in this narrative to say about Jesus. So we'll talk about all of that. Um, but again, the idea is just to slow ourselves down. So here's your turn. You're on now. I'm going to read the passage again, and I want you to just consider the who, the what, and the where as you, as you engage the passage. We'll talk through those things together for a few minutes. Uh, I'll make a couple preaching points. Um, and there are, when I say preaching points, I'm, I'm way overselling that. It's just like I put a heading on something. <laughs> there's, there's, there's really no, uh, I really should have thought through what the headings were, but, but I am what I am. Uh, so anyway, we'll talk through some of the things that might not be immediately obvious, um, and then we'll go from there. As always, as is our custom, there is a phone number there in the lower right corner. That goes to Jacob's phone. You can text a question. And he'll read the question out. Or if you, fortune favors the bold here, if you want to go ahead and ask that question out in front of other people, that's all good too. So I, am, I do have to say, like completely unrelated to the sermon, I'm grateful to be in a place where this sort of culture of dialogue exists, where people ask questions and they get answered. And I would also affirm you in terms of the quality of your questions and observations that... I've been in some context where it's sort of like Bible answer person, where somebody's just trying to trick somebody with their question, and I personally find that to be ridiculous and not helpful, but there's none of that here, so I really, uh, I do want to affirm you in the, the quality of the questions and observations you make and just what a rich thing it is to experience that together. So, with that, I'm going to read again, uh, and then we'll just open up the floor for some some observations. So, soon afterward, Jesus went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her, and said to her, Do not weep. 
And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has appeared among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout Judea and in all the surrounding region. So let me ask you, as you consider the who, the what, the where, any of those things, is there anything that sort of pops, anything that sort of leaps off the page? Even if it's just, and and quite frankly it should be, just an initial observation, you might just say, I'm curious about Nain. It's kind of a weird name for a place. Haven't really heard of that before. Could be something as simple as that. It could be observations about the people. So anything, I'm putting it out to you. I will stand silently. Somebody's being raised from the dead. Yeah, that's pretty significant. Yeah. Yeah, that's not something, something I experience in my day-to-day. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty significant. And then if we were to, to sort of dig on that one a little bit, this is a pretty big deal. And if you consider it alongside other Gospels, there aren't even a ton of examples of Jesus doing this in the Gospels, right? So this is a big deal. In fact, I would say in John's gospel, uh, the raising of Lazarus from the dead actually becomes like the catalyst for accusing, arresting, and crucifying Jesus. That they finally, like, it's a very public act, uh, and the religious leaders decide, like, we cannot have this continue. Like, this is a deal breaker. And that actually, in John's gospel, becomes the grounds for accusing him. So it's a huge, huge deal. And then you consider how it's different here. Like, as what I just described in John's gospel, how is that different here? And that, that's not a rhetorical question. That, how, is, how is this different? Okay. So he, the, the man, Lazarus, is identified. Excellent. Very interesting. Yep. Uh, shortest verse in the Bible, for those of you that did memory verses and were clever. <laughs> you were clever and you picked the shortest one. John, you know, Jesus wept in John 11, but in this one he tells a woman not to. It mentions compassion. Excellent. We'll talk about that more in a couple minutes. Very cool. Yeah, right. There's no reason and it almost seems like incidental and accidental. Like he just, this is the way he was going and I'm at a funeral. Sorry, I'm about to crash in all the music stuff. But yeah, that's, it it is this sort of almost out of the way. Like it's not central to things. It's pretty early in Jesus' ministry and it doesn't garner a lot of question, or it doesn't garner a lot of attention, honestly, because it's in this out of the way sort of place that there is this full sense of restoration. We'll talk about that in a couple minutes, too. Absolutely. Yeah, so you have all essentially just made the preaching point, so I'm just going to pray, and <laughs> we'll all go home for lunch early. That's awesome. Yeah. No, all, all great observations. And this is precisely what I'm talking about in terms of we slow ourselves down to see these details and then dig on those a little bit more. Um, that's, all, that's all great stuff. 
Yeah, the touching of the coffin's interesting. Yeah, right. So in, in that case, it's like just spoken word from a distance. In this one, there's the, the physical touch. And that like, I, I would say according to Old Testament law, you know, I hope I don't offend anybody here, but Jesus makes himself ritually unclean by touching the coffin. And that's where things kind of grind to a halt because like it, you don't touch, only the, only the bearers would be touching the coffin. So it's, it's a certain um, act of audacity on Jesus' part to do that. So another, another great one. Yes, absolutely. Actually, that reference from Hebrews, we talked about that a little last week as well, that we don't have a high priest who's unable uh, to sympathize with our weakness. And that actually segues perfectly into Jesus' response of compassion, uh, that, that he does experience. Because we don't want it to be lost on us that like you're saying, that, that this is a woman who uh, has gone through the agony of losing her child, right? That, that that's something that we can identify with and just, I mean, maybe not personally, but, but circumstantially. Uh, and we don't want to lose sight of the fact that just because it's in the Bible, <laughs> like this is a gut-wrenching story. Um, and even like the large crowd that's with her, it would be common at the time to have professional professional mourners. And the, the idea being that this is actually an act of compassion. You, you have people who are there who are openly weeping almost dramatically, and it preserves the dignity of the people who really are weeping. Like, I don't know if it, funerals for us are, are the worst in terms of you know losing somebody, but then just not being able to loudly grieve. So this is an act of dignity that you are, in a sense, covering that noise with professional mourners who would be making more noise so that, so that mom can go through what she needs to go through without experiencing the self-consciousness of being the only one who's feeling that level of grief. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but, um, but yeah. So uh, anything else? Yeah, and I think that you have that sort of mixed reaction of like fear and worship, and, and I think it gets to the point that somebody who was dead is now alive and speaking, and I'm not sure how I would <laughs> react to that. Like, I would be joyful, I hope, but then I would also feel somewhat afraid. Uh, like, it's just this, we don't even have a category for it. So I think that the complexity of the response is, is there too. Yeah. Absolutely correct. And just in case you couldn't hear, um, fear, the word that's translated fear um, also has this sense of awe to it, that you're just looking at something that is just unbelievable, uh, and, and the only true response is awe. So, excellent. So, I'm going to just very quickly go through my preaching points, just to highlight and dig on some of these a little bit. So, the first thing that we see, which is noteworthy, is uh, compassion. The fact that Jesus felt compassion for her. This word is one of my favorite uh, Greek words just because it's really awkward to say. It actually has to do with like your inward parts, your guts, your bowels. I've said this before. Uh, and the word itself is ugly and it like it sounds ugly and it like conveys something that truly is like your inward parts are just gross. Like that's... <laughs> So anyway, uh, that's just my own morbid fascination uh, with the word itself. But it's used of Jesus and by Jesus a lot. It's a very graphic word. 
Um, and it just has to do with the fact that you're feeling something at the deepest possible level. So when it talks about your bowels or your, like uh, Philippians will translate it as your affections, like it means that you feel things at the deepest part of who you are. Um, so in other places, you have uh, Jesus saying, or having it said of him, seeing the crowds, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus looks at this crowd of people and he feels in the deepest part of who he is, just compassion for them. Next slide. When he came ashore, he saw a large, large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Again, same word. Next one. Now Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. So this is the feeding of the 5,000. And then Paul uses the same word in Philippians 1.8 where he says, For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection is that when I used to lead a youth group, I, I called it gut love because like there was just... It was hard for me to convey the meaning, but it does have to do with feeling things at the deepest part of who you are. Now, in this context, the fact that Jesus felt compassion for her makes his injunction to her not to weep feel, and, and I'm just my own reading of it, so don't, you know, you can come after me for this. When Jesus says, weep not, I do feel like nobody really knows who he is and to come upon a scene like that unless you have real authority is cruel, right? To, to walk up to somebody who's experiencing any kind of grief, but grief at that level to say, you know, stop crying. Like that's, that to me is cruel unless, of course, um, it's, it's Jesus. But the fact that that statement is framed as a part of his compassion for her. Um, you know, it, it, it at least helps me to hear that a little bit, a little bit better. Um, yeah, so I feel like because he's feeling things so deeply that, that that frames it. And then missionally, I think there are some questions that we have to ask ourselves as we think about our own interactions with others. Like, am I willing to actually listen and to develop empathy for people? Like, do I feel the pain of my neighbors at the level uh, that, that Jesus is describing here? Do I seek to understand and do I seek to feel the agony of other people? Um, and does my compassion extend even to marginalized people? This is a marginalized person. This is not somebody who has any political capital. She is of no practical advantage to Jesus' ministry. She is in every way marginal. So do, does our compassion extend even uh, to marginal people? And to me, this helps as we come off the Beatitudes in chapter 6 and as we have what could be considered sort of abstract teaching on Jesus' part, we get to see that this is what it really looks like, right? That's the thing that's different about Jesus in the ancient world. It's not just a list of, of teachings. He actually lives in such a way that you can see. Like when Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, as an abstract statement, that's fine, I guess. But seeing him live it out in very powerful ways... Um, it is just, is just incredible and a gift of God. Um, so that's important here, Jesus' compassion. And to get to your point in terms of um, 
like her being fully, uh, fully marginalized and destitute. I want to say that I think that renewal in the New Testament is holistic. And when I say that, we can't simply overlook the social and economic ramifications of this whole scene. So as we come upon this, it's easy and, and quite right for us to identify with the emotional component of this woman has lost her son. In and of itself, devastating. But in the ancient world, there's no safety net really to fall back on. Um, that, you know, losing your son is enough to crush a person. But once the dust settles and the crowd is gone, the fact is that this woman is now completely disenfranchised. Her life on every single level just became exponentially more difficult. Um, the Old Testament law actually makes provision for people in these circumstances in terms of gleaning laws, and there are all sorts of ways that the nation of Israel is obligated to show compassion in very practical ways, right? I, I, I do want to say that it's not just a feeling that we have for people, that, that God in his wisdom and his generosity actually required in the law you had to do practical things in order to help. So one example, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament law, was gleaning laws, meaning that as they're harvesting a field, they can't pass over the field twice, meaning that anything they missed is left there for people who are disenfranchised, people who don't have their own income or whoever needs to glean the fields, like they can come by and they can get the food that you missed. So that's actually built into the law. If you want to see a, an example of this biblically, uh, the book of Ruth uh, portrays this, that you've got Ruth and her mother-in-law, you've got uh, Boaz, who, thank God, is a faithful individual, you, the gleaning laws are there. But you can picture for this woman, she has to rely now on the faithfulness of her community in order to survive. And I don't know about you, <laughs> that's not something I am personally comfortable with, right? That I would actually have to rely on the faithfulness of, of my community to survive. That's hard. And, and maybe, again, we talked about faith last week. You probably have more than I do. Um, but you can understand the situation that this woman's in. Uh, so when the dust settles, she's not only having to deal with the agony of separation from her son, it's, it's that she's economically uh, challenged as well. So as we think about renewal, as we think about restoration, I want to urge us to to see the deep need, both personally and missionally, just to expand our vision of what the gospel is and what it encompasses. I think the New Testament is very clear that it, it encompasses everything. God cares about everything. And Jesus in the gospel aims to restore and renew everything. So it's not just that this woman gets her son back. It is an economic, it is a social restoration as well. And those things are not unimportant to God. It's not just this sacred secular divide. It's not just this, well, the real need is spiritual. Um, that doesn't happen here right? And I don't want to draw those separations, but I don't think the New Testament does. So in Luke's gospel, when Jesus says, like, your faith has saved you, that word 
is a spiritual thing, but it's also a practical, physical, economic, whatever it is. Like, it's holistic. So I, I want us to, to maintain that. We had a great conversation at our house on Monday uh, with Shannon talking about creation care, right? And I would say that that is as much a gospel priority as anything, that God made the world, he is renewing it, he sustains it, uh, we should care about those things, and the gospel's big enough to include all of those things. It's not just a spiritual transaction. And in Jesus' case, he can restore this um, son to his mother, and it's not only a great benefit to her, obviously, emotionally, in terms of companionship of her son and, and having to deal with that, it's also economic and social. So, I'll move on from there. Finally, just to close my time, I just want to look at what is this doing uh, in Luke's gospel. And we've already talked about this a little bit. The first thing is the emphasis on care for disenfranchised people. So this out-of-the-way healing isn't really even central to what Jesus is doing. It's just an act of sheer generosity. Um, and I think that it only appears in Luke's gospel for this reason. Like, this is a unique story to Luke's gospel. It does not appear in the other gospels. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why? Why does only Luke include this? And I think this is the reason. This is care for disenfranchised people. This is what the gospel is all about. This is what Luke's gospel in particular is all about. If I had all kinds of time, I could walk you through all the differences where Luke emphasizes care for the Gentiles, um, all of these sort of marginal groups of people that are emphasized. And if you consider the second part of Luke, the sequel, <laughs> Acts, uh, where does Acts end? It's on a trajectory toward Rome, toward the nations, right? So Luke's gospel is just all about disenfranchised people. And the only thing I have as an analogy to this um, is uh, when I used to chaperone eighth grade trips to Washington, D.C., which sounds terrible, but it was actually fun. Uh, eighth graders, once you move them out of their natural habitat of middle school, they're, they're quite pleasant and fun to be with. But anyway, we had this tour guide whose name was Maddie. And we were able to reserve him every year because he just related well to the kids and he was a, a brilliant tour guide. Maddie was from Estonia and he, whenever we went to the World War II uh, memorial, he would tell the same story and the chaperones used to like roll their eyes at me because the first time he told it, like I just bawled because it was beautiful. And then every time he told the story after that, like by the end I would, like as we were pulling into the World War II memorial, I was anticipating the story and was already crying. Um, so it was always embarrassing for me in front of my colleagues and a bunch of eighth graders. But anyway, Maddie would describe the first time he had eaten bubblegum. And it was when he was a child in Estonia, which I didn't even think was a real place. I thought he's like, he's making that up. It's from a Disney movie. But apparently Estonia is a real place you can find on a map. But he grew up there. And after uh, Allied forces move, World War II is over, and, and people are, as, as you know, the Allied forces are coming through, he said that a GI just from a tank just threw, they were throwing candy to kids and he got a stick of bubble gum and he told this story. And I just thought like, that's just beautiful. And I think that that's an analogy to what's happening here, that in the grand scope of what's happening in Europe during World War II, liberating people and all of that, 
it's not so big that it doesn't give bubblegum to a little kid who's nothing on the face of the world. And that, to me, is what is happening here with Jesus. That in the whole grand scope of what Jesus is doing in restoring all things, he's not so big and so important that he can't step out of his way into this marginalized woman's life and restore her in every way. And I think that that's a word for us. I'm going to stop very briefly. If you want to look at these first and second Kings accounts, I think Luke is very uh, consciously framing this story after uh, the raising of the widow's son in Shunem. Uh, If you read these two accounts, you're going to see a lot of similarities, and you're going to see some things that are different. And just... I'll, I'll leave that to your own edification. I actually wrote a paper on that in seminary. If you ever need help sleeping and you want to read the paper, I'd be happy to. <laughs> or I could just tell you about it. And you would just, as if by magic, fall asleep right then. So um, anyway, I'm going to stop. I'm going to pray, and then we'll open it up uh, for questions. Just don't lose sight of this sense of God's compassion and generosity. So let's pray, and then uh, I'll answer questions if there are any. God, we are grateful for your spirit, for your word, even as we've uh, rushed through these things. Help us to focus on things that are uh, meaningful to us, meaningful to our circumstances, things that shape our spirits, shape our view of you, shape our view of mission in our city. Um, And I pray that your spirit would fan those things into flame as we consider who you are and how you would have us live. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.